Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. A big tactical mistake that I made when I became executive editor and when the job was offered to me is that I never said, and what is my salary going to be? And what was my predecessor paid? It was incredibly stupid of me not to ask Hi, everyone. You're listening to The Females, a podcast from Career Contessa that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season of The Females will explore the world of meltdowns and comebacks. I'm Lauren McGoodwin, CEO of Career Contessa and the host of The Females. Today's guest is Jill Abramson, author and Harvard College professor. She also happens to be the first and only woman to hold the position of executive editor at the New York Times, a role that she would lose in a very public way. Jill Abramson's ascent at the Times makes perfect sense considering Jill is a native New Yorker through and through. Raised on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, she finally left the city for college, heading to Harvard to study journalism. While finishing her studies, she landed her first job at none other than Time Magazine. Not long after, Jill decided to make a huge pivot. Eager to experience life beyond the East Coast, she headed to the South to work on political campaigns before jumping right back into journalism. She'd go on to work at publications like Legal Times, The American Lawyer, and later, The Wall Street Journal. While working as an investigative reporter and deputy bureau chief for The Wall Street Journal, Jill co-authored a book called Strange Justice, The Selling of Clarence Thomas, which detailed the circumstances around Justice Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing to the Supreme Court, during which Anita Hill, an attorney and law professor, accused Thomas of sexual harassment. 20-plus years prior to the Me Too movement, Jill's book ultimately confirmed that Hill was telling the truth, but Justice Thomas was never held accountable, a pattern we've all heard too often. This was just the beginning of Jill making headway on behalf of professional women everywhere. In 1997, by way of a female friendship at a networking event, Jill joined the New York Times as their Washington bureau chief. As a native New Yorker whose family literally received two daily copies of the paper growing up, this was a huge honor. As a woman at a male-dominated national newspaper, she was also making history. Jill's career and life at the Times is where our interview starts. We're going to cover how she landed the top job at the Times, the first woman to do so, the two questions she wishes she had asked before accepting the job, and why she made sure that they fired her rather than stepping down quietly. Let's dive in. 
In September 2011, you become the first female executive editor of the New York Times, and you held that position from 2011 to 2014. Tell us how that came about. I, I'm, I, I know the, the New York Times played an important role in your family's lives, so I'm sort of curious if you had this you know, incredible moment when you were offered the top job, as you say, your, your family's, you know, what they consider the Bible. I mean, that's sort of, and I'm sure it's full of emotion, but also I, you've worked so hard. So you also probably had this feeling of like, yeah, I deserve this. Um, I mean, do you think well, I've been, ma- I've been managing editor, which, you know, is it, that job is the number two, uh, most powerful job in the newsroom. And, when the executive editor is either away or working on longer-term strategy and things like that, the managing editor kind of runs the daily news report. And I had done that for eight years and loved that job. Uh, you know, dur- during that time, you know, working uh, for and with Bill Keller, the executive editor, you know, we just had a ball and like we really like put tons of gasoline in the tank of investigative reporting and did, you know, some fabulous, fabulous things. I mean, the the paper became much tougher on the Bush administration during the time we held our jobs. Uh, I got to direct all the coverage of the 2008 presidential election, which was like so fascinating and like interesting to cover. And, you know, I think we did just an amazing job. And, you know, I, 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 there wasn't like a part of running the Times' news report that I hadn't done in the eight years that I was managing editor. Uh, Still, you know, there's definitely no guarantee that I would get the top job. Uh, And, of course, there'd never been... I mean, I was the first female managing editor, too. There'd never been a woman managing editor. And, you know, Arthur Sulzberger, Jr., the publisher was looking at, uh, you know, Dean Baquet, who'd been a uh, top editor at the New York Times and also the, the editor of the L.A. Times, and Marty Barron, who had different editing jobs at the Times and was the editor of the Boston Globe. So he was looking at two other fantastic guys as well as me. But if you hadn't gotten it, wouldn't you have been a little bit like, why, why not me? I mean... I certainly would have felt that way. Yeah, Honestly, yeah, of course I would have. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I had proven myself and was certainly qualified for the job. And, you know, I had invested a lot of my time in the, the urgency of the digital transition and that we were definitely uh, crossing over from a world of print into a world of, uh, digital journalism. And, you know, I felt like I had, you know, stronger chops in that than, than anyone else who was in the running for the job. So I'm kind of curious because there are going to be a lot of women listening to this podcast who have 
maybe been up for the top job or you know, advocated for themselves to get the promotion and been turned down. Obviously, this wasn't the case with you, but what what would be your advice to women who this is about to happen where the top person is getting ready to retire or move on and they really want that role? Like, did you go in and advocate for yourself and say, here's why I'm the right person for this role? Or, I mean... Right. Usually, I think when you're going for the top job anywhere... Uh, usually there's a process, and the process at the Times was that the publisher, uh, Arthur Salzberger Jr., asked the three of us to write pretty detailed memos about what our vision would be for leading the leading the Times uh, as executive editor. So. I poured, you know, a lot of myself into trying to write the most compelling uh, memo I could. And there's an interview process. And, uh, but I don't think any of us, I mean, seriously, like politics for the job. Like I, I wasn't like going to the other editors who work, had worked with me or, to reporters who I knew like me. I, I, you know, there's no lobbying campaign or anything like that. Uh, you know, it sounds simplistic, but, you know, I just, I just put my best foot forward um, and followed the process. There's nothing else extraordinary. I think, like, an advantage that, that I had is that the Times at that moment had a female CEO named Janet Robinson, and I think she was definitely in my corner pulling for me. And I think that made a really big difference that she was such an ally and a promoter of mine. Well, I love that you say that because uh, we talk a lot about female allyship on Career Contessa. And believe it or not, there's actually more female bullying that happens in the workplace than there is male to female bullying. And I I really like that you're pointing out that you've had a lot of great female friendships that have helped you advance your career. And I'm sure you've done the same for them. And I just think that's a really important lesson for women to hear. Um, because it, 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 as you said, like an advantage is that you had someone in your corner who was, you know, Right. cheering you on or wanted you there. And that is really important. And those are the parts of work that no one's, you know, checking in and saying, Hey, I want you to be my ally or be my mentor, be the person, you know, it's not, it's an organic thing that happens too. It, it should happen organically. Uh, and you know, I, I, I feel from the, the get go in my working life, that's been just so important. I had Believe it or not, a Time magazine, which is the first place I ever worked, uh, the the bureau chief in Boston, uh, who I worked for, was a woman. She had begun at Time as a secretary for the editor-in-chief, and she had clawed her way like into the research pool, and then from the research pool, she became a reporter, and a correspondent, one of the first women to be correspondent. And then she was the first female bureau chief. And, you know, when I started working there, I was still a senior at Harvard. I was like a nobody, but she 
took such an interest in me and, you know, gave me some fantastic assignments and made sure, you know, I, I was learning and, and getting, getting trained in the basics of reporting and, and writing news stories. And she was just great. And by the point I became the, the Washington bureau chief of the time, she was working for time in Asia. And when the news spread that I'd gotten the job and was the first woman, she sent me a telegram that said, uh, I can hear the glass shattering all the way in Hong Kong. And, you know, I, I just have been so advantaged by having, you know, women more senior than me and older than me really being very caring and devoted to seeing me progress. Absolutely. And, and it, it, it takes that with hard work to progress. So I, I appreciate you sharing that just because I don't want anyone to, to walk away thinking, you know, you can only do, you know, either a lot of great networking or just work really hard. It, it's, you know, again, this is a holistic approach. It's a career that is full of building relationships as well as right. doing the great work. Um, when you when you had asked me, like, was I going to be mad if I didn't didn't get the job? And I think like something that's important for like your audience and, you know, people and particularly women who are kind of out there hoping to get the top job where they are is I would like discourage people from focusing on like an angry reaction too much. I think the important thing, and at least this was what I said to myself is, to really think about in your work, what is it that you love doing? Like, what are the parts of your job that you love? What are the parts that you'd rather do less of? And, you know, if I hadn't gotten the top job, I would have been, like, so happy to go back to just reporting and writing my own, like, investigative stories. And, and that's not bullshit. Uh, I the whole time I was an editor, I desperately missed uh, writing and reporting, and I would periodically break away and do do some writing for the time. So I didn't have time to do big investigations, but you know other longish pieces. And you know, I I had my fallback position was okay. You know, I may not be the best editor and manager there is, then. If I don't get it, I'm going to go back to kind of my first love. And I, I don't think there's any shame in that at all. I, I don't think if you don't get it, the smart thing to do is walk out of the, the place in a house. <laughs> that's I would say overall good life advice <laughs> walking out in a huff <laughs> doesn't usually end well um, <laughs> or to feel that I, walking out in a huff is kind of a stereotype I guess what I'd say is don't feel like you have to walk out out of like wounded pride right and I, I think what you're also saying is that it's it's great to want to progress your career but 
that doesn't mean that you always have to say, if I don't get the next promotion, then I'm a loser and I've lost in this game of life and it's all over. There's plenty, you know, you you know, there might be a part and there are, there are plenty of people who actually get the promotion and they're like, I don't want to manage people. I don't like this. I really liked what I was doing before. (laughs) Let's go in that direction. I I definitely... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, what was it like to run the New York Times? And also as a woman, do you think the the expectations and the rules for you were different? I mean, I can't even imagine you're the first. So there isn't any role model or examples to, to, to say, hey, how was this done before? I mean, what was that like? Hey there, let's take a quick time out from today's show so I can tell you about Folane. You've heard me talk about Folane before and their curated selection of the highest performing, safest, and 100% non-toxic products, and that's because I believe you should never have to compromise your health for beauty. All of Folane's products go through a rigorous five-step approval process, so you can feel confident that you're only going to get the best products. I recently took their skin quiz, which was super fast and simple. I'd highly recommend you start there um, and decided to purchase their clean essentials kit. The kit is a perfect introduction for anyone looking to explore clean beauty, simplify their routine. And as a bonus, the four essentials come in a cute kit that's in this nice emerald green that you can throw into your bag and go. I just took my kit with me on a quick girls getaway weekend, and I really can't get enough of the golden hour recovery cream. So I would love to share with you guys that for only $22, that's over 50% off, you can try your own clean essentials kit today. Just go to folane, F-O-L-L-A-I-N.com backslash females to try the kit and enter females at the checkout for free shipping. Again, for only $22, that's 50% off, you can try your own clean essentials kit today. Go to folane, F-O-L-L, ain.com backslash females to try the kit and enter females at checkout for free shipping. Okay, now let's get back to the show. I did not necessarily enjoy managing people. Uh, And I guess a truth in life is if you don't really enjoy something, you're not going to be really great at it either. So I don't think I was made to be a manager. I think, you know, I am a really great, like, story editor and a great, I have great, really terrific story ideas and I'm a good inspirational deployer of, you know, armies of journalists to go after stories and I love, I love that part, but I did not, you know, like a lot of other aspect, administrative aspects of running the newsroom. And, you know, my time of both being managing editor and executive editor were co- coincided with very severe economic problems. Uh, you know, the financial crisis had a devastating effect on the Times and every newsroom, and these were not uh, years of expansion, but of having to make cuts in various ways, uh, 
you know, both in the size of the newspaper, you know, in some of the sections. And, you know, there were uh, buyouts, most of which were voluntary, and some layoffs. And that, that part of the job had me eating my insides out. That's <laughs> a perfect way to describe that time. I, I, I wasn't. I mean, the most miserable for the people who lost their jobs. I don't. I don't want to sound like poor, pitiful me, but I. I you know, I. I internalize. You know, a lot of of that mm-hmm. pain. The well, the pain of that period. Right, and it was a very unpredictable time. You know, and I think. Um, one of the things I was also going to ask you about was with your time at the, being at the New York Times and running it, do you look back now and would you say if you'd been, let's say we could go back to time knowing everything we know now, which would be awesome, but that's not reality. So we're in make-believe land. Could Would you accept the, the role of executive editor or I would Mm -hmm. I would because it really was like the honor of my life to have that job and you know the good days definitely outnumbered the bad right so in a turn of events I don't want to get away from this positivity but there is a, a negative part of this story which is you were you were fired from the New York Times um, in May of 2014, which is just 33 months after taking the job, and not just fired, but publicly fired. The fact that I was fired publicly was my choice. The, the Times actually wanted just to put out a press release saying I had decided to step down and, you know, have it be done as quietly as possible. And I looked at the press release and I said, not on your life. I've spent <laughs> my career telling the truth, and I'm not going to stop now. I'm I, I'm going to say I was fired. I, I love that. I mean, I think it really tells, I mean, why let them get away with them getting to say like, oh, she stepped away. You're right. If, you're, if they're going to fire you, they have to own it too, which I'm sure they got a lot of backlash from that as well, right? Yeah, I don't know that I'm the best of how the whole thing went down. That's sort of too personal to have a a distant distanced analysis of, you know, how what perceptions were back then. So I know, you know, I I you know, felt supported by, you know, so many women like in the workplace who weren't journalists and who, you know, I never knew and would never know in my life. But like, they, they really, you know, rallied behind me, which was like, very meaningful and made that period not as painful at all as it otherwise would have been. So what did you, so it comes out that you've been fired, what happens then? Do you I mean, you're t- you're saying that you had a lot of support coming out. Where what did you decide to do? I'm just so curious because I imagine, I mean, this was four years right. ago. I so mean, the, thing, the, the most immediate, you know, it's funny. The you know, the life is sometimes so much simpler than than it seems. But my first big decision after I was fired was I had agreed to be the commencement speaker at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. 
about a, seriously like a week after I was fired and you know I didn't I wasn't doing any interviews or talking to the press uh in the aftermath of being fired but you know I knew I have to make a decision like am I gonna like cancel this speech or am I gonna go and hold my head high and and give it and you know I decided I'm gonna go and give give this speech at Wake Forest and I'm not kidding you over 200 reporters came all the way to North Carolina to hear my speech and I mean what did they think I was gonna say you know <laughs> like get up there and as an inspiring talk for the Wake Forest seniors that I was gonna like denounce you know the New York Times it was crazy but you know these stories have a way of like building into these feeding frenzies and I think my firing became one of them but it was important to me you know I'm thinking like what what do I want to say and what do I have in common with these students who you know in some ways it's like a pinnacle day of their life like graduating from college but it's also like really scary time because a lot of these great students, like me, when I got out of Harvard, probably don't have the foggiest what they're going to do with their lives. And so, like, what, and I also knew, like, to, like, just go and give some speech, like, live your dream and ignore the fact i just been fired would have been idiotic. So, like, what, I, I was racking my brains, like, what does a fire, what can a fired person say to these kids that might, like, be meaningful? And, uh, and I, I ended up writing um, a speech that was kind of inspired. My sister called me, like, the morning after I was fired, <clears throat> And she just said to me, our parents had by that point had both passed away. And she said to me, you know, Jill, our parents would be as proud of you today as the day you became executive editor of the Times. And, you know, it sounded like you can say corny and like a platitude, but it was true that my father used to always say, like, when you get, like, like when you're kicked and kicked down, like that that's an opportunity you got to show what you're made of absolutely uh, and you know the, so i decided like what i wanted to talk about was resilience and the fact that uh you know when something bad happens and you know you you think you had the brass ring and then you lose it or it gets stolen away from you like you know, what What do you do? You've got to, like, rely on your reserves of uh, sort of guts and optimism, and hopefully you have great friends and family to support you. And, you know, I said to these, you know, college seniors, you know, I'm right in the same boat as you are. I have, like, no <laughs> idea what I'm going to be doing with myself, which was, you know, 100% true at that point. I didn't have the foggiest uh, 
what I'd be doing, and it was both scary and kind of exhilarating at the same time. I'm curious, what would be your advice? Because I, I 100% agree it's not, you know, what you know people or you know what people are really made of when you see them have a setback and how they react to it. How do they bounce back? How do they rebuild from there? And I, you know. I mean, the truth is human beings are incredibly resilient. Even if they don't believe it all the time. And always. I mean, I got run over by a truck in Times Square in 2007. And I thought, Oh, you know, the doctors were saying to me, like, we're not, you know, you may have like a terrible limp for the rest of your life. You may never be able to do this or that. But, you know, and I was, you know, in my in my 50s at this point, you know, no spring chicken. But like the human body is incredibly resilient. You know, I learned to walk all over again and like knock on wood completely fine now. But like we are sturdy beasts. We are. And uh, you think you can't deal with something until it happens. And then guess what? You can. Uh. Well, to give yourself some credit, most people, when they're fired or let go, the whole world doesn't know about it. So they get to be (laughs) resilient within their own, you know, network of people. I I do think there is a level of resiliency for, uh, and I wouldn't, I would say a lot of public figures probably have to put up with this, but when you're the whole world now, as you said, 200 reporters showed up because they want to know what are you going to do next? And while that is probably terrifying, it's really exciting because that's what everybody's curious. They want to know what are you going to do next? Did you ever feel like also, did you ever have this moment where you realize like, oh, maybe there's actually a lot of pressure on me about what I do next? No, I didn't. And I knew like, it's kind of what I was saying to you before. I knew the best thing for me, don't like resist that that pressure absolutely i mean it, yes it was there but like don't grab the first like prestigious thing that's offered to you just because you want you feel under pressure to show the world the answer to that question what are you going to do next like take, take some breathing room time uh, catch your breath but most important is kind of Figure out what is it about work that you love and go back and do the work. Just do the work. And so I didn't really, you know, I did not accept like a job right away. And what I did is I actually went and I did an investigative. So I spent the whole summer that summer working on an investigative story. Uh, that was published by a bunch, you know, a, a bunch of um, weekly newspapers in New York, and it was an investigation of pedestrian crashes and how many um, in in accidents and cases where people are horribly hurt or children are killed. A shockingly few number of the drivers even get traffic tickets, uh, let alone get prosecuted. And I did an investigation of that, of the legal process and the holes in that legal process. And it was the best thing I could have done, like 
get get back to first principles and don't like be worrying about like oh I want the world to know I'm still important and I'm going to be <laughs> doing this or that. Don't do that. That's the wrong thing. Well, I'm curious too how or maybe you have or maybe you haven't but have you redefined your meaning of success because and I ask that mostly because I imagine as you just said a lot of people would their ego especially would really struggle with I was so important I was this epitome of the stereotype of success right I was you you were running one of the the nations you know or yeah you mentioned in your note to me the Forbes list I mean that was just like that Forbes said I was the fifth most powerful woman in the world. I mean, that was insane. Because <laughs> uh, I, I so wasn't. You know, that's like crazy. I mean, the Times is a very important institution in our society. But, you know, my quote unquote power, like, was only as powerful as that particular position at the times is and you know i don't know i never invested too much in the whole like ooh, you know i'm a woman of power that it's just it's not my style <laughs> uh, um so you know i i i wasn't too too i i'm not i never have been like a, so, a particularly social person. I don't go to a lot of parties, so I wasn't worrying about um, what people were thinking you know, and saying. What I, yeah, I'm definitely not. You know, we could today call it the Alan Dershowitz school. I could, I could not give a you know what about. <laughs> would I go to or get invited? Well, that's to. probably an important ingredient for being very resilient as well. I, I think especially with social media and the ability to compare it's, you know, I agree that humans are very resilient. It can feel extremely difficult to feel that in the moment, especially when you are dealing with, um, you know, right. you know, I have to say social media, you know, we, we, we get a lot of criticism of it and there are definitely things to criticize, but like social media makes you feel like when something public bad happens to you, it can be very consoling. I mean, so many, you know, women went on Twitter and Facebook just in support of me and, that 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 was you know to me nicer than you know any worrying about loss of status that I would have otherwise felt. Uh, what what subject we didn't we we didn't talk about that I think is important for women in their careers as they're progressing up the ladder is a big tactical mistake that I made when I became executive editor and when the job was offered to me is that I never said, and what is my salary going to be? And what was my predecessor paid? Uh, those are two questions that I think uh, any woman uh, being offered a promotion has to ask. And you don't have, you shouldn't feel embarrassed or shy to not ask it and it was incredibly stupid of me not to ask it. 
Did you did you purposely not ask, or were you no, you just forgot and then just, thought about it? I I just forgot and it never came up again. Nah. And, and to be honest with you, I just assumed, like, of course, in this day and age, the new, the liberal New York Times is never there going to pay like a woman less than a man. Oh no, the it's it's <laughs> the statistic so assume, is real for a don't reason. Don't assume. Never when it comes to pay, never assume. <laughs> what What would be your negotiation tactics too? Because there. We teach women a lot. It would be just to be like, you know, to just ask those two questions. Like, what is the salary that I'm being offered and what was my predecessor paid? And when you asked those questions eventually, did you find out that you weren't being paid the same? I never asked them. That's (laughs) what I'm ashamed about. What happened is another um, official in the newsroom asked, me whether it was okay to do a gender pay equity study of the newsroom and I said sure Um, and when that study was done this official walked into my office and said well the study is done and I have to tell you you are exhibit A so that's how you found out that you were paid less that's how I found out I had no idea Mm -hmm. I had no idea well, that is extremely great advice. We at Career Contessa, if anybody is listening to Jill's advice and thinking, I haven't asked, we have some great tools that you, and I'll make sure to include them, um, everything Good. from the salary That's project. Great that you have tools. We do. We, we have an anonymous salary database. So even if you're afraid, it's, you know, I think also sometimes people have a lot of trouble talking about money. And so, um, but there are a lot of great tools on there. And then we even have a script. So if you are like, I don't even know how to start the conversation. We will tell you (laughs) how to walk into your boss's office and start that conversation. But I think that's great advice. And I think the part there that I'm really walking away with is don't assume, you know, do not assume, even if you think you're working at an establishment that would never do anything like that. And I also like your advice about, you know, maybe you don't need to walk in there with the attitude that, they're trying to to pay you less like you should go in there and just oh, start no. with the facts yeah how much am I being paid straight. and what did they get paid Play straight mm-hmm. <laughs> so um I've got a couple last questions for you um the first is so our podcast season theme is about meltdowns and breakthroughs and obviously you are um <laughs> the role model for a lot of us on resilience and I think you had some really great advice there if you could rename meltdown what would you call it i it's a a tough that's a tough one for me i mean can you be are we talking about a meltdown like if you are suddenly overcome with anger or emotion in a situation at work are we talking about a meltdown like a career meltdown or what kind of meltdown? Um, I, I love that you're such a journalist because no one's asked me to clarify this. Uh, I interpret this as you're having a really a meltdown in your career. Something has gone wrong. Like you've been publicly fired. Um, you have okay. you know gotten a so divorce a mel- in your personal like life and you have to... of mm-hmm. your career. Yes. I, so a career sums that. Um, I think a career meltdown is, um, a career, uh, well, turn it into a career renovation. 
I like that. For all of us that watch a lot of HGTV, we will understand right. <laughs> renovation. Um, and then lastly, Jill, what's next for you in your career? What are you currently up to? Well, I have a book coming out in January about the past decade of uh, turmoil and digital transformation of news. And I tell it, I, it's a narrative about four different news organizations, The Times, The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and Vice, and how they all transformed over the last decade. I cannot wait to read that because one topic that we Good. didn't get to talk about is the the transformation of media. Um, we would have been here for another few hours, I'm sure. <laughs> so we didn't get to cover that. So um, this book, will it's coming out in January of 2019? In January. Simon & Schuster, yeah. Awesome. And I know you're also teaching at Harvard. I, I, I'm going into my fifth year of uh, teaching two writing courses in Harvard's English department. And most important of all, I am uh, a second-time grandmother. I just My grandson was born just a few weeks ago, and I'm very involved in the lives of my children and grandchildren. Well, congratulations on that. And uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to you know, share your story with us. If our audience wants to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Where are you the most active? Uh, probably through Twitter. And what's your handle? It's just my name. Okay. Spelled out Jill Abramson. A -B Jill Abramson, right. Yeah. Uh -huh. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jill, so much. Okay. Thanks so much. Love the idea and the name of your show. That was Jill Abramson, author, Harvard College professor, and former executive editor of the New York Times. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. For more interviews and career advice from incredible women, check out careercontessa.com. We also offer other great resources like career coaching, a curated job board, profiles on female supportive companies, and on-demand career courses in our e-learning library. Seriously, we're a one-stop shop for your career success. And after listening to Jill's advice on negotiating her salary, I'd highly recommend that you download our free script on how to ask for a raise. We call it the Gimme Script. It's free and you can find the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And I would be so grateful if you could rate us and review us. It's really, really helpful and valuable to see what you guys like about the show. Plus, we'll send you all the good karma vibes in return. And don't forget, we're super social over on our Instagram channel at Career Contessa. And we'd love your help spreading the word about this podcast by mentioning it on your social media channels with hashtag the females podcast. You can expect a new episode of the females podcast every Tuesday, and you won't want to miss next week's episode featuring Amanda and Ayanti, head of culture innovation at the 3% conference author and an expert on modern stress and how we can use our stress for living healthier lives. There really is no such thing as stress-free living. And would you want it to be? Because if the truth is that um, that which does not kill you makes you stronger, that adversity is the pathway to becoming a better person and growing, like who wants to never grow?